During these moments of transition, I'd like to thank you and remind you. Thank you for your generosity and giving to the church in various ways. We had Operation Shoebox take place recently in connection with Samaritan's Purse. A number of shoeboxes were filled and sent overseas to uh, children who don't have any other means to attain a gift. And that, those shoeboxes contain a gospel storybook. Thank you so much for helping us with that. Thank you for the uh, filling. Uh, you gave some resources and supplies that we used to fill some stockings as I prayed for RJ Presswich at JBLM. He will have a number of military personnel, 15 to 20 or so, over to his house on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And they'll be family for a day. And they will be treated to some gifts that will express God's love to them. Thank you for that. And thank you for his socks and cookies being given, uh, brought in even now to the, uh, for our jail ministry. Uh, those are packaged together to give good gifts to those who are inmates in the Thurston County Jail System. And they'll be communicated with the hope of the gospel as well. Uh, reminder of student next week, two different services, one in the morning at 10.30, one in the evening at 6.30. Totally different services. Hopefully you can come to both, park in the gravel parking lot and leave the the closer parking to our friends who, who need to use that. But also at 5.45 on Christmas Eve night, is that, am I saying that correctly? 5.45 in the evening. Uh, appetizers right next door at the fireside room. Would love to have you join us for that as well. Okay, John chapter 10 is where we are going. Hopefully you are there. John chapter 10. I'll be reading some of that in a minute. I want to warm up your thoughts with these ideas. Six percent of Americans believe the moon landing was faked. Five percent say they're not so sure. Uncertain. So that's over ten percent. If you were in a, a group of people and just asked around, hey, did the astronauts really land on the moon? One out of ten would say either no or I'm not so sure about that. Even with the evidence photos and eyewitnesses, and you could talk to real live astronauts who went there, interview them or their family. There's spaceships and, and other equipment that, that traveled there and back and was used to uh, 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 navigate the landing and, and the return. Even with all of that, there's still 6% said no way, 5% said no, uncertain. Two surveys in recent years tell us that 10% of people worldwide do not believe that there really was a Holocaust. Six million European Jews were murdered during that Holocaust in just a few years. And there's evidences of that. I've been to Jerusalem, Israel. I've been to the Holocaust Museum. While there's a lot of evidence of this, there's photography, there are survivors of the Holocaust, there are names of people who no longer exist, there are family members who belong to some of those folks who no longer exist. There's a all kinds of clothing and artifacts, personal belongings. It's, it's the, the evidence is unmistakable, and yet one out of, one out of uh, ten worldwide. It's sadder uh, when you consider that 20% of uh, American young adults between the ages of 19 and 29 do not believe the Holocaust really happened. Even despite the evidence that, that it happened, there are still some who say, no, no going to deny the evidence that didn't happen. A denial of evidence is not something that uh, is new. It happened in the ancient world as well. 
You see, Jesus put evidence of himself as the Son of God on clear display. And there were some who looked at that evidence and said, no, no, you're not who you say you are. I know, I know what you did. I, I understand. I saw some of what you did, in fact. But no, you are not who you say you are. Hard to deny evidence, but people do in this day, in the modern world, and they did in, in the old day, in the ancient world. There are those who persisted in their unbelief, no matter how hard or how clear Jesus put the evidence on display that he really was sent by God as the Son of God to save people from sin. And we're going to look at this uh, dichotomy, if you will, in John chapter 10. Jesus speaks of both his words and his works as a testimony, the body of evidence. It's what I say, it's what I do. It's what I've said, it's what I've done. Here's this body of evidence, and there were some who persisted in their unbelief. They looked at the evidence and they said, no, you're not who you say you are. One of the reasons why we travel through the Gospel of John and We've done other Gospels in the past. We will do more in the future. One of the reasons why we talk about Jesus so much on Sunday mornings at Hope Community Church, we are just reminding ourselves and setting before you the evidence that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be, the Son of God, sent by God to the Father to save people from their sins. We get to review the evidence for ourselves, in other words. Jesus said many things in public. He said many things in private. He spoke all over the, the nation of Israel. And he went to places where, back in the day, you could investigate it for yourself. You could have gone to these villages and cities and talked to the relatives of, of various people who lived there and saw some things. You could have verified this once it was in print. Perhaps some tried. I would guess not many. The way I look at it is either Jesus was right or he was wrong about himself. He was either right in that he's the son of God and therefore he is of supreme importance if he really is who he said he, claim, who he claimed to be, the son of God sent by God to live here to save people from their sin. If Jesus is wrong about himself, he is of no significance whatsoever and we really ought to shut down and stop playing church because there's no significance whatsoever to the person of Jesus Christ unless he is 100% right about himself. So there are two choices, believe or unbelieve. Perhaps I should say belief or unbelief. And there are two types of evidence that Jesus sets before you this morning, his words and his works. And Jesus wants you to choose belief in him because he's already given credibility to both his words and his works. So as we look at it in John chapter 10, and I'll read through some portions of Scripture here. I want you to notice the responses of belief and unbelief. And those choices are made in response to the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus. I'll start reading with John chapter 10, verse 22. Initially, I'll take us down to verse 33. <clears throat> then came the feast of dedication at, at Jerusalem. It was winter. And that tells us that three more months have passed since John chapter 9. And there are three months to go until the Passover in the spring when the life of Jesus Christ will be extinguished. 
Then came the Feast of Dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple area, walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe me because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has also given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one." Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said, I have shown you many great works from the Father, for which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. So Jesus appealed there to both his words and his works. Let's think about what Jesus has just said and done. Just, just looking at John chapter 10, Jesus actually has said quite a bit. I am the good shepherd. In other words, I'm the one that the Old Testament predicted. I am here. The one that you've been waiting for, the one that, that was prophesied in, in, uh, from years gone by, as many as a thousand years or prior to the time of Christ. We have detail about his crucifixion. Jesus says, I am on the scene. I am him that you've been waiting for. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate, meaning I'm the only one through, through whom you have access to eternal relationship with God. And uh, Jesus has said he's gathering his sheep. That's just John chapter 10. We could go back even further a little bit. Just looking at the gospel of John, Jesus has said some things. He has done some things. I'm the bread of life, Jesus said in John chapter 6. I'm the light of the world in John chapter 8. I'm the gate for the sheep in John 10. I'm the good shepherd, John 10. Jesus claimed to be God in John chapter 5 and John chapter 8 and John chapter 7. Uh, excuse me, John chapter 10. You simply cannot say the thing, these things truthfully unless you are the Son of God sent by God to save people. That's exactly what Jesus wants us to think and believe. <clears throat> Also in Gospel of John, just in John, there have been, so far, a number of signs, miraculous signs, six of them prior to this occasion of John chapter 10. Jesus changed water into wine at the wedding of Cana, that was in John chapter 2. He healed a royal official's son in John chapter 4. He healed a paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. In John chapter 6, he fed 5,000 men, and if you had women and children, that's about 15,000 people or more. Jesus fed all those miraculously. He walked on water also in John 6. He healed the man born blind. We saw that a couple of weeks ago in John chapter 9. You simply cannot do these things unless you have the power and authority of God himself. Jesus has clearly put himself on display, and yet they ask, how long will you keep us in suspense if you are the Christ? Tell us plainly. No wonder Jesus said, I have told you. I have told you multiple times. I've told you in crowds. I've told you in private. I've told you in the city of Jerusalem. I've told you outside the city of Jerusalem. I've told you in Judea. I've told you in Galilee. I've told you individually. I've told you 
publicly in crowds. I've told you in religious settings, I've told you in casual conversations. Jesus has said it again and again, both with spoken word and with what he has done, unleashing his power and his ability. So verse 25, Jesus says, I told you and you do not believe. And then he carries on and says, the good works that I do in my Father's name speak for me. The Jews rejected every demonstration of Jesus' authentication as demonstrated by his power and his authority. I think because they did not want to submit to his authority. Sometimes the... um, um, The signs that Jesus gave that spoke of himself did not even require miraculous intervention. For instance, it doesn't require God-like power to overturn temples, or excuse me, to overturn the tables in the temple area. It would do overturn temples, but Jesus overturned tables and he drove out uh, vendors and animals. That's not exactly miraculous but it spoke of his authority over the temple. Somebody knew was in town. And he's taken authority over the temple system. They didn't want to submit to his authority. And so they just negate things that Jesus did. Of the seven signs of the Gospel of John, we've encountered six already at the time of this conversation. Six irrefutable proofs of Jesus' um, deity. And they are, they are um, met with disbelief on the part of the religious leaders. So here's what we've seen so far in the Gospel of John very clearly. The works of Jesus confirm the words of Jesus. Works alone are not as clear as works plus words. And words alone evidently are not as powerful as words plus works We see them both in the Gospel of John. By the way, I've been making mention of seven signs, and yet at the end of the Gospel of John, John tells us that there are so many miraculous signs that really all the books of the world would not be able to fill it. So he he choices, he, he chooses seven of them very selectively that these will fit in the Gospel presentation that John is giving. But there's much more than that. We know of six because they, record, they are recorded in the Gospel of John, and so I refer to it that way. But there's much more than that. Let's trace this out even, even more. Watch how Jesus ties together words and works, and he connects them to belief and unbelief. Jump down to verse 36. Uh, the first full sentence in verse 36 I would call this uh, 36b. Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works my father does. Love that. Such a fa- I'm going to put that up on the screen here. Do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. And as I traveled through John 10, this second portion of John 10, I found myself asking several questions. Why don't these religious leaders believe? Got the part that they don't really want to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. But you know what? Sometimes I find myself doing things not because I really 
cherish that moment, but because I'm willing to believe Jesus and take him at his word. Why didn't they go that far? Why is this consistently met with unbelief? And if you think about it, no one on our earth had a better seat than the religious leadership. They were raised with the Old Testament scripture. Not only did they have the Old Testament scripture, but they have opportunities to hear and Jesus teach the Old Testament scripture. They got to see his countenance, look at his body language, his tone of voice, his inflections. They got to see some of the miraculous signs, probably not all of them, but they got to see some miraculous signs. Plus, they have access to Jesus. They can challenge him. They can ask any question they want. Evidently, they can get answers. They have the best access to Jesus Christ and his words and his works ever. And they still do not believe. Why? You folks believe in a whole lot less evidence of Jesus Christ than they had presented to them. They're not denying the existence of Jesus Christ. Some people do that today. They're not saying, well, it's true for you that Jesus believed, but, or that Jesus lived. It's not true for us that Jesus ever lived. They saw him. They, they recognized and they acknowledged he is a religious teacher. They thought he was a false religious teacher, but they would have categorized him as Jesus really lived and he taught things. And he even taught things from the Bible. They might say he got it wrong, but they would say that. So why, with the best seats ever, do they respond with unbelief? Well, as the gospel writer, John has already told us, and we re have reviewed this once before, I think it's good to look at again. I'm turning back to John chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, in the introduction, what we sometimes call the prologue of the gospel of John, if you were to read nothing else, read that in the last chapter of John. So much is contained in, the, in those sections, but I hope you read the whole thing. Gospel of John is just so rich. He, he, he spells out his introduction, and then he, I think he takes the rest of the gospel to expand upon his introduction. John chapter 1, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And he brings that back again in John 3, 19. Uh, you're familiar with John 3, 16, one of the greatest verses written down in Scripture, my favorite verse. John 3, 19, though, says this. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. They got used to living a certain way and preferred to live a certain way without regard to whether or not their deeds were called evil. They just simply preferred it. They liked the darkness. They loved the darkness. But watch what Jesus did. God sent Jesus here to dispel the darkness. I'm moving forward to John chapter 8, verse 12. John chapter 8, verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And Jesus brought that back again in John chapter 9. This is in connection with the healing of the man born blind, who is an illustration of the spiritual reality that Jesus gives light to people who are spiritually blind. Verse 5 of John chapter 9. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. The encouragement that we have in sharing the gospel is simply this. Jesus is the light of the world. If you want to think of yourself as the light of the world, you are a small light. Jesus is all caps, bold, large font, light of the world. 
And we know people will come to Christ because he will lighten their hearts and enable them to see and to understand who he is. Okay, back to our gospel, or to our passage in the gospel of John chapter 10. Read again with verse 28. Jesus claims to be God, and he does so with clarity. Verse 28, I give them eternal life. Okay, who on earth can give eternal life unless you're not the son of God? Nobody can. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I want to put a portion of that up just because there's a, there's a, a, parallel, a couple of parallel statements here. Uh, and it's part of the way Jesus claimed to be God. And it just helps to look at it and, and to see it, be able to visualize this. So do you see the second phrase and the fourth phrase? No one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. Those are parallels. So Jesus is saying, equal to no one being, being uh, no one can snatch them out of my hand. Equal to that is no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. To be in Jesus' hand is to be in the Father's hand. To be in the Father's hand is to be in Jesus' hand. No one can take you away from the Father because the Father is greater than all. No one can take you away from Jesus because Jesus is greater than all. The only logical conclusion I can reach when I look at it this way, when I see the parallels that Jesus put into place for us, no one snatches them out of my hand is tantamount to no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. The only conclusion I can reach is what Jesus said in verse 30, I and the Father are one. We are driven to this inescapable, inescapable conclusion that Jesus and the Father are one. What Jesus said and what Jesus did from here on out for what Jesus is going to do is consistent with the reality that Jesus is God. One reason why this was so offensive to the Jews is that they had, uh, they had this scripture in Old Testament. Let's see if I put this one on here. Yeah, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Not only did they, were they familiar with this, they had it memorized. Not only did they have this memorized, they recited it twice a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Then we taught this from the youngest days. As soon as they could understand language, they were learning what we call the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now you might think, well, gee, that's not fair. So they've been taught from the earliest days of their lives that there is one. The Lord God is one. So then they're thinking God in heaven and Jesus is here on earth and he's claiming what they heard was Jesus did not claim to be a God. They, they heard Jesus say, I am God. Big difference there. And so they pick up stones and they want to do away with his life because they, the penalty for blasphemy is stoning. They want to take him out. Why, why would it be fair to have this written down where they could read it? And they were required to read it and memorize it and recite it twice a day. 
And then Jesus comes along and he says, I am God. All the while they know God is in heaven. Do you remember the first line of the Old Testament Bible? In the beginning, God. The word for God there is plural, Elohim. Just like a word for an angelic being, uh, seraphim and cherubim, im in Hebrew language is plural. 25 times in Genesis chapter 1, excuse me, 30 times in Genesis chapter 1, 2,500 times in the Old Testament, God, Elohim, is recorded, and it always, always is in the plural form. They had revealed to them even earlier than Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, that God exists in plurality. This is a preview to the Trinity. Now, the way we have responded to it is we, we've looked into the Gospels. We understand the Father selects people for salvation. Jesus actually does the work of salvation, and the Holy Spirit reveals and he sanctifies people who have been saved. We've, we understand that there's a, there's, there, there are roles and responsibilities that the Godhead play, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we've actually chosen to just express it as sort of a ranking. We would say that the, God the Father is the first person of the Trinity, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the second person of the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. That's not to say that uh, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are less God than, than God is. It's to understand and to um, acknowledge the, the, the authority submission structure that, that they fully embraced. So the Father planned, and sent, planned salvation and sent the Son. When the Son lived here, he submitted to the Father, he went to the cross, and he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now the Son is our risen Lord Jesus Christ, and he sends the Holy Spirit, the, the very same Holy Spirit that empowered him, he now sends. And so there's this, there's this change of submission and authority and relationship. But this is what we have now. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they all interact with each other, they all love each other, they exist in eternal community. That is the one God that is revealed in Scripture. In John chapter 10, Jesus is speaking in reference to our redemption. When he said, you cannot snatch them out of my hand, you cannot snatch them out of the Father's hand, I and the Father are one, he is speaking redemptively. Now, if you follow this out to its logical conclusion... The extension of this is just stunning. Nothing less than the omnipotence and the unity of the Father and the Son secure our salvation. What Jesus is bringing to us in John chapter 10 has some very impl important implications of his deity in our relationship with him. Your salvation is eternally secure because God is eternally strong. Any other offer of salvation would have to at least meet this bar, and no one else can. Jesus has set the bar so high that no one and nothing else, no body of teaching, no new book, no new person could arrive on the scene and say, I have a better offer. 
I can save you and keep you better than Jesus. Nobody can say that. No one. So what Jesus is doing is he's offering himself as someone to believe in and his words as something to believe. Let's pick it up again, verse 31. Uh, Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great works from the Father. Great, great line. I have shown you many great works from the Father. That is so different than I have shown you, uh, I've done a whole lot of things myself. I have shown you many great works from the Father as God has worked in him. For which of these do you stone me? Now watch how the Jews respond. Just in case we don't understand what I and the Father are one means. In case you don't understand verse 30, verse 33 explains it all. We are not stoning you for any of these, the good works that the Father has done through Jesus, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. What the Jews were trying to do unsuccessfully is they were trying to disconnect the words and the works of Jesus Christ. The works are undeniable. They cannot even handle a man born blind, and yet there's going to be a greater work to come in John chapter 11. They cannot, they cannot dismiss this. They don't know how to explain it away, and so they, they just sort of compartmentalize. The works of Jesus Christ are over there. The words of Jesus Christ right here in front of us, those words are wrong, no matter what they saw in the works. Cannot do that. The works are undeniable. And Jesus appeals to them more than once in this conversation. But something very interesting uh, comes from Jesus, starting with verse 34. And again, we, we need to put a little bit of time into this so we can understand this fully, because you could get tripped up if you walk away with a misunderstanding on this. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are God's? plural. Wow. Okay. Wow. What about all this stuff we just said? The Lord is one. And now we're reading here. There are gods. Wait, uh, hang on. Verse 35. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Um, why don't we figure out where that quotation come from? Came, comes from? It is verse 34, is it not written in your law, I have said you are God's? I hope you have a Bible that cross-references for you. I get my Bibles as plain as I can get them, and there's a cross-reference on this one. I see a small letter D, and I look down at the bottom of the page, D, and it says Psalm 82, verse 6. So let's turn in your Bibles, and it's worth it to take the time. We're going to come back to John 10, so don't lose your spot. Uh, Psalm 82 Let's find out what in the world is going on here and why would Jesus appeal to this psalm at this particular time when he is, in fact, demonstrating that he and the Father are one. Uh, Sometimes a a good, quick um, way to get an understanding of a psalm or a chapter of Scripture is to read the first and last verse and and see if there's a, a, a beginning and an end, like bookends. That could help you make sense of this. So Psalm 82, verse 1. God presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the gods. What do the words preside and judge lead you to think of? Preside 
and judgment. Gee, I wonder if this is about judgment. Verse 6, rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. Okay, so that gives me a clue that the topic of uh, Psalm 82 is going to be judges and judgment. And God holds that position ultimately. Gee, I wonder if there's some people who hold that position in their earthly lives. Let's read verses 6 and 8. 6, 7, and 8. I said you are God's plural. You're all sons of the Most High. Okay, now, is that deity the way Jesus is the, is the son of the Most High? Well, let's keep reading. But you will die like mere men. Oh, okay, well, that answers that. Of course not. You will die like mere men. Whereas the book of Hebrews says Jesus has an indestructible life. I read here in the Psalms, you will die like mere men. You will fall like every other ruler. Okay, so the judges or rulers referred to in this psalm are sometimes called God's lowercase g. Uh, that's just a way of referring to them. They, they, they sit in a position that ultimately God holds. So they have something in common, so to speak, with God in that they are judging or they are ruling. Ultimately, that belongs to God. His jurisdiction alone is, is to be the judge of the whole earth. But there are people who judge and there are people who rule. And they are called, for whatever reason, somebody has called them gods. So back to John chapter 10. Interesting that this is not a silver bullet type of win the argument and everybody sits down and shuts up, but it does stop the stoning from, from happening. Perhaps Jesus is applying the psalm to his claim to be the Son of God in this way. If Scripture uses the term gods for something less than God, then perhaps the Son of God would be a legitimate use to describe the one that God sent here to be the Messiah and the Savior of the world. Again, not a silver bullet, but it stops the stoning from proceeding. Practically, the reference to Psalm 82 buys Jesus some time. Time for one more gracious invitation. This is the fourth time in the Gospel of John that they've tried to seize Jesus or to kill him. And he responds with yet another gracious invitation. My, oh my, the the depth of the grace of God is absolutely inexhaustible. We have something in our culture called road rage. You know, if you, you honk the horn at the wrong time and you're in the wrong place, somebody's going to get fighting mad. This is God who entrusts the world with his son, basically. Here's my son. Reverence him. And they want to kill him. And Jesus, one more time. Well, let's go over this. You can, still, you can still be right with God. Absolutely amazing. Let's uh, pick up our reading with verse 37. Verse 37. Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, my words, 
Believe the work that my Father does through me, that you may understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. One more invitation. And how do they respond with this? to this? Unbelief. Verse 39. Again, they tried to seize him, and he escaped their grasp. Now Jesus leaves. Never again will he teach them publicly in this way. The last week of his life, he will do some teaching in the public, in the uh, temple courts, but he'll never gather around them, these people, for this kind of teaching. Verse 40, then Jesus went back across the Jordan. Now, in order to do that today, you have to leave the country of Israel. Then Jesus went back across the, the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. Here he stayed and many people came to him. They said, Though John never performed a miraculous sign, all that John said about this man was true. Words and works again. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. And I think that, that, that comment is meant to linger in your mind. In contrast to the religious leadership that had the best seat in the house. Here are these people who only got Jesus for a short period of time. Oh, sure, we'll, we'll, we want to believe in you. We believe you when you say these things. Okay, well, <clears throat> this raised another question in my mind. N none of us believe God perfectly. And those of us who are Christian, followers of Christ, we, we don't believe Jesus perfectly on a day-to-day -day basis. Sometimes we believe the words of a friend over Jesus. Sometimes we think or feel and we, we allow our thoughts and our feelings to take priority over the words of Jesus. Sometimes we believe the culture or our perception of right and wrong and, and we let that rule the day in terms of which direction we're going to choose. How do you know if you are responding to Jesus with belief or unbelief in, in such a way that you want your belief to be pleasing to God? How do you know that? Verse 27. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. Listen to the voice of Jesus. Follow him. It might be too early to be talking about next year, but I'm, I'm thinking about trying something. I'm not saying yet I'm going to commit, but I'm thinking about it. I noticed recently that... Uh, for me, Bible reading for pleasure had become a bit scattered and was being dominated by the Gospel of John, which, yeah, I love the Gospel of John. I, I just love it. But I, I found myself reading over and over again uh, what I was going to teach you, and I need to read with more depth than that. So I, I ordered, and I, I could tell from Amazon, I, I bought this probably eight years ago. I never read it. <laughs> I don't know if I gave, gave it away. But I, I, I got a new one, $7, love these $7 Bibles. It's a one-year chronological Bible, NIV paperback. I plan on reading it and marking it up, and then just whatever happens to it happens. Um, maybe you want to try that. How is it that you follow Jesus and listen to his voice? What are you presently doing? Th this one's nice because I don't have to figure out I don't have a separate piece, I don't need a separate piece of paper to tell me. It's just broken up by, by days. So I, I'll just keep a bookmark, which really is one of my business cards. I'll just keep a business card in, 
in my Bible, and that'll tell me where I stopped reading, where I started. Evidently, this is going to take me through the Bible in chronological order, 15 minutes a day for a year. Well, 15 minutes, I think I could do that. How about you? You can make it through the entire Bible in one year. Choose any plan you want, but have a plan. Um, the reason why it's important to read the whole Bible and, and things like Old Testament is Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 39, we looked at this already, these are the scriptures that testify about me. So I want to read about Jesus in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, on from there. I want to read about Jesus in those books. And this is more than an academic exercise. If the people who walked the face of the earth who had the best seat ever to get to know Jesus Christ and they chose unbelief, I don't want any part of that. And neither do you. Time spent with Jesus in his word, learning about his works with the goal of fellowship with him, not just knowing him, but seeking him and knowing him that results in a deep, real, life-changing relationship. Jesus anticipated that. Jesus anticipated there'd be people who would know him so profoundly and so deeply that it'd be better for him to leave earth and be in heaven and let his people be here. Isn't that amazing? John chapter 14, verse 12 says, whoever believes in me will do the works, same word that we've been reading in the Gospel of John, do the works that I do. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. So from the perspective of Jesus Christ, it's better for him to leave earth, be in heaven, and have Holy Spirit-empowered believers doing the work that he began. Do you believe that this morning? Because if you do, that includes you, Christian, follower of Jesus Christ. We offer a lot of things to help you out. Um, Bible study, obviously preaching on Sunday morning, worship on Sunday morning, core groups, core classes, home groups, any number of things. We also offer, and this is uh, at times largely underrated, brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. That's why every once in a while we say, turn around and, and meet somebody. You folks who park over here all the time, you need to meet some folks over here. They're wonderful people sit over here. And you folks, you might not know this yet, but there are some awesome people over here, and they know Christ just like you do. And you should meet them. You guys should meet brothers and sisters in Christ. Get together and read scripture sometime. Pray. Hold each other accountable. How are you doing in Christ? Talk about spiritual things. From the perspective of Jesus Christ, we can choose belief. And when we do, from his point of view, that's better than if he had stayed. Let's pray. Dear God, we just marvel at that last verse that we just sort of stumbled upon. That Jesus, all wise, all knowing, always right, he knew it would be better for him to leave the proximity of earth and live in eternity with you and let us do his work here. Wow, we are humbled by that. We, 
we are encouraged that Jesus thinks so highly of us. We are a bit embarrassed to think that. I don't know what what the evidence is really pointing to here. So I, I pray, dear God, that you'd help us to live a life worthy of our calling. That we truly would be imitators of God. That we would represent Jesus to a watching world that, quite frankly, is dying without him. Help us to be moved and motivated as we get into your word that our heart's desire might be, may you have more of us so that we might look more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.